All right, baby. Friday on the fan pregame, Justin Cuthbert and Jesse Rubin off today. Ailish off until Monday. Uh, it's a busy night on the network, a spectacular night on the network. I mean, take your pick. Vegas and Boston, Bruce Cassidy's return to Boston. Pittsburgh and Seattle, that's just on Sportsnet in the NHL. Regionally, Arizona and Toronto, LA and Vancouver. And on Sportsnet 1, Milwaukee Bucks suddenly red hot at Charlotte, plus a finals rematch. And if you're Tom Haberstroh, maybe a finals preview, Miami and Denver. It's an awesome night on the network. We'll get we'll catch up with Mike Fuda in about a half hour to touch on Chris Tanev's trade to Big D and what the Leafs might be doing eight days ahead of the deadline. Plus, Sheldon keeps temperament. Yeah. He he has a temper. Yeah. So we're gonna talk and he addressed that temper, and yeah. we will address that as well. I can't well. wait. Uh, in a couple minutes' time, former major leaguer, former Blue Jay, one of just three Blue Jays to hit for the cycle, now a player agent, was once a Scott Boris client. Jeff Fry coming up in minutes. Exciting time to be talking to a guy like that with, I don't know, three of the best free agents that were available in baseball, still sitting mm-hmm. out withering on the vine as teams are playing in spring training. So we'll talk to Jeff about what teams are doing now. And we just passed Nick Kiprios, and it's unofficially Nick Kiprios Day because yeah. only once every four years, on leap years, can we reminisce over Kipper's trade from New York to Toronto on this day in 1996. So shout out to Kipper and shout out to Mike Comito uh, for letting us know what's up this day in Maple Leafs history. But we'll start with Boris because we're going to uh, connect with Fry in about five minutes. And you asked a very simple question earlier today when we were talking about the show. Mm-hmm. Why don't the Blue Jays just go out and sign Blake Snell? Like, just forget whatever's going on with this Boris thing and just go out and get a guy who won a Cy Young last year in the National League to make sure that the best part of your team is dominant. Well, that's exactly right. It's like they haven't done enough, I think most people can agree, to supplement the offense in the offseason. I personally am expecting them to be around the same offense as they were a year ago. Things will be a lot better if their best hitters perform to what we think their potential is or their quote-unquote career norms. But given what we saw last year and given the additions, we could probably expect more of the same. And if you're not going to add offensively, you have to anticipate that there are going to be some level of injuries or not great performance from the pitchers that gave you incredible performances a year ago. They were the healthiest rotation as well in all of baseball. There was a guy in Blake Snell sitting out there who everybody knows what his resume is like. He came out today and said that he's willing to take a short-term deal. The Blue Jays have an opportunity here to say, we actually are serious about winning. We are in our window. We recognize that we're running out of years with potentially both Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and Bo Bichette. And it's time for us to make a run. Does it create a little bit of a log jam in terms of arms? What does it do to Alec Manoa? These are things that you can figure out when you bring in a player of Blake Snell's caliber. So I just think, JC, like if we're looking at them truly wanting to be contenders in the mm-hmm. American League, just get it done. Go out and do it. I kind of love it from the, the perspective that initially had me pushing back on it. Well, you have Alec Manoa in the fifth starters role. Why would you need Blake Snell? But... How comfortable is Alec Manoa coming into the season? Like, I think too comfortable Mm -hmm. when you're talking about inexpensive experiences after plunking three batters in a spring training start that doesn't mean anything, but also means a little bit because what uh, uh, what happened last year. If you just add to the rotation, you just add a pitcher, you just add to what's already strong, well, it creates a hyper-competitive environment where you can't be just okay and expect starts every fifth day plus if you are just solidified at the starting rotation position, 
then you could go out and trade Alec Manoa if need be. Or you have a trade ship in one of the pitchers, although it probably wouldn't be uh, the ones that have carved out that pretty permanent role, at least in the top four. So I don't know if it's Snell. It's not going to be Snell in all likelihood. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's Matt Chapman. I mean, J.D. Martinez, like there's still those Boris guys out there. And I guess the question is, if there's something going on here where there's some resistance to Boris clients, why do you have to play along, right? Like, and this isn't even a Jays question. This could be a Texas Rangers question. It could be a Baltimore Orioles, whatever it may be. Like, why are you falling in line when you could go out right now and go get Blake Snell if you're any team, really? Yeah, it's confusing because it's it's not a league where you have a salary cap and you have restrictions. Obviously, there are teams that spend and there are teams that have a serious hesitancy to spend. But when you look at the landscape of Major League Baseball, it is truly bizarre that there are players of the caliber of a Matt Chapman, clearly a Blake Snell, but a Matt Chapman, a J.D. Martinez, players who you would think. I mean, Matt Chapman is not over the hill. He went downhill considerably in basically since April of last year. But I don't think anyone can sit here and say that he's still not a fabulous third baseman that many teams would be lucky to have. So it's just confusing as like how much more could Scott Boris be asking for for these guys that would render GMs to be like, we're not going to touch them. Like we are well into spring training now. And these, it's just bizarre that these guys mm-hmm. have not been signed. And I start to wonder, and I keep, I keep coming back to this. We heard Rob Manfred talk a, a couple days ago about the potential of a signing deadline coming in to Major League Baseball. I understand that from an MLBPA perspective, that's not necessarily going to be the greatest thing in the world because you just sort of hold back until the deadline and then players are probably not going to get the best offers. But it would make for a better situation than having to wait five months and now sitting in spring, spring training and not having these guys on teams. It's weird. It would be pretty exhilarating if yeah, there's a deadline, awesome. right? Like it would be like you're expecting your team to do for something sure. and, the, and the clock is ticking. It would be interesting, but I'm sure there would be some fit, pitfalls there as well. Uh, let's continue this discussion with our first guest of the let's day, Jeff it. Fry, a former major leaguer, now a player agent and a former Scott Boris client. Uh, thanks for jumping on, Jeff. Hey, guys. How you doing? Uh, we're doing pretty well. So we want to dig into this a little bit more because it's frankly confusing on the surface that uh, former Cy Young winner uh, last year, still unsigned, uh, Matt Chapman, who played third base, at least defensively, at a really high level for the Blue Jays last year, still looking for a home. These guys are connected and other guys are connected through their agency, which would be uh, Scott Boris. So can you just kind of outline, and again, uh, I'm not sure how far you want to go with this, how far you can go into this, but the reality of being a Boris client now what is that, and, and how has it changed? Well, I think uh, a lot of guys, uh, you know, when they feel like they're in a position to command a huge contract, that Scott Boris is the guy who signed the, the richest contracts in history, so they all flock to Scott Boris. And I think the problem, one of the problems is that, you know, he has so many guys that are free agents, who's he going to focus on? And I think a lot of the guys this year in particular have overplayed their hands. And now we find spring training has started and we have some very capable guys, top-notch guys who don't have jobs. I think it's because they probably asked for too much money up front and we're holding out for those big contracts. And now they're probably wondering what happened. And this happens almost every year with Scott Boris when he has this many high-profile guys. And I think it's just part of the deal. If that's what you want to do, you want to – take the risk just you got to be prepared to 
handle the consequences. What's the dynamic there? So when Scott Boris and the player ask for too much money from a team, does oftentimes, even if that number comes down, does the team, are they so offended that they aren't willing to come back to the, the negotiating table? Because it would seem like in this case, for whatever they were asking for beforehand, the number has had to come down if these guys want to play baseball this year because right now we're in spring training and they don't have a team. Yeah, I don't know that anybody gets offended anymore in baseball. I mean, the thing, the, the question that I have is that how does he come up with these figures? So you have a Cody Bellinger who had two crappy years and then has a good year, and then he wants $300 million. Then you have Montgomery, who was great for the Rangers last mm-hmm. year, but kind of faded kind of faded in the playoffs. He wasn't near as dominant. And I'm sure Montgomery could have already signed a four or five year contract for somewhere between 125 and 150 million, but I bet he was asking for more. And now he may have a one year contract. Um, and let's hope he doesn't get hurt. And, and these kind of things happen a lot. We just don't hear about these stories. Um, we only hear about the success stories, but we don't hear about the guys who are offered you know, 40 million and turned it down um, because they wanted 42. And then the next year they blew out their elbow. Uh, so we don't hear those stories from Scott Boris guys, but they're out there and it's happened a lot of times. So how much, like, what is it? What is the experience of being a Scott Boris client then? Like how much sway or say do you actually have over your own affairs? Or are you just kind of beholden to what the guy you're paying uh, to do in terms of negotiating a contracts is going to do? Like how much power do you actually have when you sign on the dotted line with him? Well, uh, when I, when I signed for Scott, with Scott Boris, it was the last year of my career. And I was basically, my career was almost over. And I just needed an opportunity to try and get a 10th year in the big leagues. And my, my only opportunity was in AAA with the Reds. And so Timmy Nairing called me because we were teammates with the Red Sox. He was working in the, in the Reds farm system and asked me if I wanted to play. And I said, let me think about it. I called him the next day and said, yeah, I'll play. He goes, how much money do you need? I said, I don't know. What do you got? He goes, 12 grand. I said, let's go. That was it. And, then, and Scott Bors, so Scott Borst never negotiated a contract for me, but they told me <laughs> after I told him I already had a contract, they said, well, in the future, uh, you know, let us do that. And I was like, listen, and I said, I don't want you guys asking for too much money. Uh, I'm not going to AAA to make money. I'm going there to try and get back to the big league. So I don't want to let you give you guys the chance to mess it up for me. So I'll handle my own deal. So that, that was just something I experienced in my career at a late stage of my career. But, you know, I, I also, my first major league client was Darren Oliver. Darren Oliver was with Scott Boris for nine years. And Scott Boris uh, was there when Darren was doing really well and signed big contracts. And then Darren, you know, had kind of a down spot in his career and it, with nine years in the big leagues went to play winter ball, which most guys wouldn't do. And so he didn't have a job in the big leagues and he called me and he said, Hey, I just became an agent like a month before. He goes, I need you to help me get a job. Mm-hmm. And I said, I can't, you're a Scott Boris guy. And he goes, well, wait, stay on the phone. I want you to hear me fire him. I said, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Call me back. And so five minutes later, he calls me back and says, all right, left him a voicemail. See what you can do. I immediately called the Rockies, the last major league team I played for. My good friend was working there. I, I knew I could get in touch with Dan O'Dowd. Dan O'Dowd said, I thought Darren was a Scott Boris guy. And I said he was. But, uh, you know, he decided to, to hire me instead. He goes, well, 
it's funny because Scott called us about six weeks ago, and at the time we had no interest in Darren Oliver. He goes, but things have changed, and some things fell through. He goes, but he hasn't called us since. And I said, well, he just wants an invite to spring training. And so we worked out a deal. He got an invitation to spring training. Darren played nine more years in the major leagues. Hmm. That's awesome. But, but, Scott had, but Scott had given up on him because at that point in Darren's career, he was not a priority. He wasn't a big money guy. So he's going to focus on the big money guys first. And so I think you have to know that when you go in that, you know, like Joey Gallo, I'm surprised he, you know, Joey Gallo two years ago was, you know, asking for these ridiculous, this ridiculous amount of money. And now he's signing one year deals for 5 million. That's really, really, that's an incredible story. Like, I, I, what, what is it about your experiences with other player agents during the time that you were a player, whether it be Scott Boris or, or anybody else that made you want to become a player agent and change the way that things are done? Well, the reason I became an agent, honestly, was because my agent um, for my entire major league career kind of bailed on me toward the end of my career. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I had nine years and 15 days in the big leagues, just finished, a, you know, 2001 with the Blue Jays. And it's kind of hurt, kind of hanging on by a thread. And I called my agent and I said, hey, I, you know, what do you got? And he goes, well, I don't have anything. He goes, I'm busy with arbitration cases with other players. Why don't you make some phone calls on your own, call independent league teams and all this. And I'm sitting there going, what? I mean, I've been, I've paid you 5% or 4% of my, salary for the last nine years in the big leagues and now you want me to make phone calls on my own so i thought about it and i called the union and i said hey you know i'm gonna fire my agent and i was actually gonna hire a guy named billy martin jr who's a close personal friend and the union talked me out of it gene orza uh was the number two man in charge of the union he says is that what you need billy martin i said i don't know gene i know billy will work hard for me he said well i said what do you what do i need gene he goes you need an agent with some pool. Scott Boris owes me a favor. Let me make a phone call. And that's how I became a Scott Boris client. Never wanted to be because I'd always heard the, the stories about Scott Boris guys. And actually one of my best friends growing up worked for Scott Boris. And I still didn't want to go with Boris. It's fascinating. I mean, we think about the agent-athlete uh, relationship and it seems like one-sided in terms of the disposable nature of it, right? Like we hear of athletes that just, you know, fire their agents on a whim because something might not be going right, but it can go the other way and seems to go the other way, at least at the end of the career, maybe for everyone. Yeah. Like is how how common is this story? Like does this happen to pretty much everyone at the end of their careers? It, it does. It happens a lot. Uh, and, you know, some... It's unfortunate. That, and that's what really inspired me to become an agent because I... I vowed that I would be different. You know, I thought that was BS that you're with me when everything's going great. But as soon as, you know, I really need your help that you're going to, you're going to turn your back on me. And so that's why I actually became an agent. And you know, I'm really, and to be honest, I'm not really acting as an agent anymore. I get called all the time to do it. I had my heart broke a year and a half ago when a client of mine that I've had for nine years when he was in high school, um, helped him get traded to the current team he's on. He made the all-star team last year, um, gold gloves, and he fired me in a minute and 14-second phone call mm. because he got solicited by a, another agency, a big-time agency, 
and I was no longer needed at that point. And I was just like, you know, I just, I'm too loyal of a guy. And I don't, you know, I, I lose sleep knowing that a kid that I never, um, you know, there's something you can do. You can have call the union and say, Hey, I want to put my guy on this no contact list because I don't want other agents to call him. And maybe I was stupid for not doing that, but I didn't think I needed to because I knew I had built up a loyalty with this kid and his family, or at least thought I had. And uh, it's unfortunate that it, you know, after nine years and this guy finally the first year he actually has a good year in the big leagues, he fires me. Yeah, it really just, I mean, what you're speaking to is that it's just a cutthroat business. And, you know, I, I think we were talking last week about Moneyball and how they do a pretty effective job of illustrating, like, when a guy gets traded or a guy gets sent down, it's just... It's something that happens very, very quickly. And I think in professional sports, people tend to lose sight of just how cutthroat things can be. Uh, we're talking about the guys who are sitting out there currently unsigned and how some of them are pretty big names. Uh, Rob Manfred has floated the possibility of a free agency deadline uh, being out there eventually. Obviously, you know, Justin and I were talking about it right when the show started. It's something that probably the players wouldn't like all that much and, and the, the players association would have a hard time seeing it through in collective bargaining. But is that something that you would like to see to maybe get baseball back on the big stage in terms of, of being in the national spotlight and having a lot more activity than what we've seen over the last little while? Cause it felt like this offseason particularly was held hostage to a degree by Shohei Otani and him not signing for a while. And it's really gone the whole five months to the point where we now have big names still out there. Would, would, would that be something that interests you having a deadline for free agency? I mean, it's an interesting concept. I don't know that, uh, you know, I don't know that it would benefit the players. I don't know, you know, is everybody going to wait to the last minute mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, and see who's there. And this is the deadline. I mean, what happens if guys don't sign before the deadline? Can they not sign then? You know what I mean? It's just like, I don't know. This is, and obviously with the Major League Baseball Players uh, Association and Rob Manford, you know, don't seem to get along too well. And, you know, hopefully it doesn't go to the executive committee because I know that, you know, I'm sure you guys know that the, the players unfortunately agree to this executive committee that votes on all the rule changes and everything in the game. And there's four players and there's seven non-players. So the players vote every time there's a new rule change against it and are outvoted every single time. That's why we've seen so many changes in the fabric of the game. And I think that's where – I think the Major League Baseball players – Association is is probably as weak as it's ever been, in my opinion. I know when I was playing, with we had Donald Fear and, and Michael Weiner that we were a pretty strong union, and that we wouldn't have just allowed the commissioner to say this is what's going to happen now. Too bad, we would have walked out. And I think by the players not doing that in the last couple times, I think it's weakened the union. Uh, on the phone with Jeff Fry, who hit for the cycle with the Toronto Blue Jays, just one of three players Indeed. in franchise history to hit for the cycle as a member of the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, two things from that of, are particularly noteworthy, Jeff. Uh, first, you hit the home run. Actually, I'll ask you, do you remember who you hit the home run off of? Yeah, uh, and it was happened to be the quarterback of the team that beat my 49ers this year. Oh. I'm wow. a 49er fan. So there's, a, so there's an extra layer there then. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, I, I had it all keyed up, my video of hitting the whole run off, Pat Mahomes. There you go. After the, 49, after the 49ers beat the Chiefs. That's amazing. <laughs> I was gonna, and then, uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, Patrick Mahomes is, is pretty incredible. He found a way to win the game. So. 
Yeah, Patrick Mahomes, a little bit more effective in big spots than Pat Mahomes, at least on that (laughs) night. Uh, But the other interesting thing is uh, the fourth uh, hit was the single, and it hit the gap pretty hard. You could have been uh, at second if you wanted to. It looked like you had a little exchange with the first base coach when you were about to round first, or you did round first, uh, at least in some degree. Uh, how, like, uh, what stopped you from going to second? Was it all you, or was there in some, some instruction from the first base coach? Well, there was instruction from Cito Gaston because I'd, I'd already asked Cito Gaston in the dugout before I went up. And I said, what do I do if I hit one in the corner or in the gap? He goes, stop it first and tell him I told you to. <laughs> I, said, are you, I said, are you sure? He goes, absolutely. So, you know, I've hit more singles than any other hit in my life. Mm. Far. And so, sure enough, I can't hit a friggin' single. I hit a gapper. And as I'm rounding first, I'm <laughs> screaming at Garth Orge, you know, what do I do? What do I do? And he's like, stay here. <laughs> he's screaming, stay here. So I took a, you know, a big turn. And we were, I think that, I think it was 11 to three in the bottom of the eighth, you know, the game was over. And so I was like, you know, it was kind of a crappy year for me. I was hurt in spring training and had the worst year of my career. And here's a chance to do one thing selfishly in my career. And I did it. And I caught so much flack for it. I couldn't believe it. It Like really an 11, three game. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, uh, the the paper the next day said Jerry Nair, the manager of the Rangers said, I teach my players to play the game the right way. And, and I was like, what? And I said, you know, I, I was Jerry Nairn was the bench coach in the Rangers when I was there. It's like, he knew I played the game the right way. And so the next day, um, dur- during bag practice, Jerry Nairn was sitting in the Rangers side talking to a reporter. And I think, uh, the traveling secretary and I walked right over to him and I shook his hand and I said, Hey Jerry, I wanted to apologize to you for stopping at first base. Not knowing the response I would get, but at least, you know, hoping I would get something like, hey, don't worry about it, kid, or whatever. And he just gives me this stone face, and he goes, just play the game. Just play the game. And I'm like, inside, I'm going, screw you. Uh, I didn't have to come over here and say anything to you, but I did out of respect. And I lost respect for him Hmm. on that, you know, that. And then then I hear Tim Kirchin on ESPN or MLB going, uh, Jeff Fry hit the suspect cycle and all this stuff. And I yeah. told Peter Gammons, I was buddies with Peter Gammons in Boston. I was like, you tell your boy Kirchin if I ever see him, I'm knocking him out. <laughs> 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 so I saw him at the, at the winter meetings and I said, Peter, where's Kirchin? Tell him I'm looking for him. <laughs> no, but I, I was had fun with it. But it, it was planned. I felt bad for doing it. I would have never done that if they did you know, a close game, but it was pretty much eight-run lead in the bottom of the eighth inning was pretty much game over. So Yeah. Yeah, I don't think you'd receive as much flack uh, if it happened nowadays. I will say we learned something here, though, because the Toronto Blue Jays have been beefing with the Texas Rangers so uh, as long as, you know, uh, the bat flip from Jose Bautista. But the beef started long before when Jeff Fry hit for the cycle. I think it all started there. So we'll make sure that history knows. Uh, Jeff, we got to run. This was so much fun. Uh, We appreciate the conversation and your time. uh, And yeah, your your intel on Scott Boris and what it's like (laughs) being a Scott Boris client. Uh, Yeah, no problem, guys. I appreciate you having me on. Uh, That was awesome. Jeff Fry, uh, former Toronto Blue Jay, hit for the cycle uh, in his lone season with the Blue Jays. Uh, We only have a minute or so. uh, So let's... uh, We'll quickly run this down. Uh, As Boris loses control, Saudi Arabia keeps loading up on it. Uh, They announced with the ATP Tour uh, a strategic partnership. Uh, 
this is sports washing because this is going to be far less dramatic than it has been with the PGA Tour and with golf and with live and everything else. It's just going to be accepted. Saudi Arabia, the tennis, highest played tennis in the world, uh, they're one and the same now. Yeah, it feels like the this is somehow just getting started, doesn't it? When you have the resources that this investment fund has, it feels like golf was the first, tennis is now although it's just sponsoring events for the most part and having sponsorships on the rankings, but it feels like we're just getting started, whether it's owning other teams across the other leagues or something else even bigger. It feels like that's where we're headed. A big night of hockey on the network. We will tee it up with Mike Fuda next. It's the fan pregame with Justin and Jesse. All right, back on the fan pregame, Justin and Jesse. A big move ahead of the NHL trade deadline last night. Chris Tanev going to the Dallas Stars mm. for a package that does not include a first-round pick, two picks, though, and a prospect. Uh, an interesting deal out there in the Western Conference. Yeah, it's sort of strange because I, I feel like that that's a price that the Leafs technically could have paid. But I guess in you know Calgary's case, they kind of said, we don't want to. Trade him to Brad for living, I guess, is the way they went. The way they went about it. Now maybe. Dallas now gets a, a little more physical on the back end. Yeah, and maybe this uh, sort of galvanizes things, at least in terms of the NHL trade deadline, gets the ball rolling, yeah. maybe the first domino, and we'll see, because the Dallas Stars are a legit team out West, and there are legit other, or other legit teams, excuse me, out West uh, that might need a reactive move uh, to answer for it. Let's bring in uh, Mike Fuda to talk a little bit more about the TANAV deal and what the Leafs might do, of course, Fuda a sports and NHL analyst. Uh, what's going on, Mike? Great talk on baseball, guys. Don't want to change the subject, but I was enthralled with that. So great to see you too, Jesse. That's so kind. Yeah, that was pretty good. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Snell and Sign Chapman, and let's just move on. <laughs> I, I like that. That's what I'm saying. Like, I know sometimes, you know, and, and Justin and I talked about this earlier in the day, sometimes we can be guilty of saying, oh, we're in, we're in Toronto and want the Blue Jays to sign everybody. But it's not like they went out you know, guns blazing in this offseason and signed, you know, Justin Turner's good, obviously, well, but he's old. I love Justin Turner. Justin Turner was my neighbor. It's Toffoli's buddy. So I love that signing, but I agree with you. But I don't want to change the subject. So it'll transfer over to the Leafs because fine. here's Toronto sports at its finest. And you've got a team that, uh, you know, Tanev, I felt was the best fit um, as far as what's out there, especially. And it's not, I think we're seeing now, and I've talked at length, and I want to beat it up. It's so difficult to play your offside at the National Hockey League level, uh, especially if you're, you know, you're getting up there in ages. I think we saw TJ Brody's game take off when he went to the left side, and it, it's 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 an, it's an art. But the way the speed teams have and the adjustments you have to make, it's such a valuable position. It's a huge ad, but I, I would be I'd be shocked if the Leafs. And I don't know, but it wouldn't surprise me if the Leafs had put their first-round pick on the table. Mm. Uh, the problem with a deal like that, other than exactly what you said, is I don't think the Calgary Flames for one second would want to deal with Brad Treleving or probably the Edmonton Oilers for that matter because Tanev would have been a nice fit there. But you, when you're sitting on the other end, sometimes you fall in love with the prospect. So this, I guess, Artem Grushnikov is the kid that they picked up. Now, clearly, there had to be many meetings in Calgary where they value this guy and and good for them because I've made a lot of calls today and I get nothing more than this is a B prospect, right? And that's not saying that the people I called are right, but good on Calgary if they believe in their staff enough that they were willing to possibly 
not take a first round pick because they fell in love with the prospect that Dallas had put on the table. Where does it leave the Leafs now? Because that that's the question. One name who had been rumored uh, about for the entire season, for the most part, Mike, is now off the board. There are defensemen still out there. But if you're the Toronto Maple Leafs and you're now trying to pivot into somebody else, where does that leave you? Well, it's a tough one. And we don't know. There's always a surprise who might be out there that we don't know about. I mean... If you're look, I mean, obviously Hannafin's the big name, but again, he's a lefty and he's a rental. I'm concerned. Uh, the one thing you see a chemistry evolve, uh, re- revolving between uh, Brad Treleving and, and Sheldon Keefe, and there's obviously Kiefer starting to feel, although he's twenty five thousand light, light later in the loafers today, mm. he's starting to feel a comfort level that uh, a GM needs you to as a coach when sometimes you're on the hot seat is to allow moves to be made so you can find out internally what you have. So in Calgary, and that was difficult because Daryl's, I love Daryl, he won me two Stanley Cups, but he's stubborn that way when it comes to bringing up younger players. And it makes it difficult for a general manager to even find out what he has before he goes after assets. Now, Bobby McMahon gets a a chance. Now, I don't think Bobby McMahon's going to turn into a 40 a year, but you're seeing a real valuable piece that you would not have known if you hadn't shifted him in the lineup. Benoit gets a chance, and now you maybe don't need another left shot, D, because he's been exceptional. And and not only do you like them internally, but now you've got other people watching on the outside, and you might have created assets that people would not have even known you had. Uh, and they need that, with, and Tree needs that, because unfortunately, the previous general manager, I mean, when you look at it, and I think in Toronto is exceptional, uh, if you're bringing in a rental, you better damn well be sure with your with what they pay their top four guys, that he's not going to be a rental and you're going to get him on a long-term deal. I believe if the Leafs had acquired Tanev, there's enough there's enough familiarity with the city and with Trelleving that he would have signed an extension. Now, when you give up a first-round pick for uh, Nick Foligno and then move on from him, not because he wasn't the right fit, but because it didn't work because he was injured, you bring in Ryan O'Reilly and give up a first-round pick. And I love bringing in Ryan O'Reilly. But he moves on and you don't have anything to show for it. So now you've got a general manager lacking first-round picks, second-round picks, trying to make the same moves at a deadline, and he just doesn't have the bullets in his gun. So fortunately, there's been some good internal moves, but it's going to be tough for Tree. I mean, there's a Lubushkin out there who's a right-shot D that they're familiar with. Um, They have to be careful not to screw around too much with the chemistry they have right now, but I still need. They think they need some help in the back end, and they got to be creative about doing it. And that's one thing Brad Treleving's always been is very creative. What what makes you say that Sheldon Keefe's uh, found a level of comfort here? Because I think earlier there was a last year, I think, and you guys correct me if I'm wrong. Like last year, he calls the guys out in the first game, and then it's like he had to apologize. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that might have been on a Zoom camera, but uh, maybe it was the beginning of last year. It was the second time. Yeah, you're I'm right. Pretty sorry. sure it was yeah. after the first game. After the first game, he called out the big boys, and yeah. I, and I think he's more familiar about you know patting them on the back, but being real honest about when they're not coming together. And I think there was a, there was a period, I know this before where there was a lot of talk about this, this team needs a coaching change. And they came back and rattled off seven victories without Morgan Riley. And, uh, and the one thing that I've noticed about this team that hasn't been there in the past is that when one of the Sherry Basson used to call them the sisters of the poor, when a team comes in, they're exposed to sand kick, they kick them. Okay, they, they don't, and, and that's been recent. So tonight's going to be another test. But recently, they've they've wiped the floor with teams that they should wipe the floor with, and that's something they've had a history of playing against against teams that are lesser than them. So it'll be interesting to see if they can maintain that. I, I just think Sheldon looks way more comfortable. He seems to be playing 
more players than in the past. He just seemed to wear out his top guys all the time. And I think that's a sign of growth. And it also, as I said, it allows something where I would think internally there's a con uh, that his general manager said, listen, you're my coach. Okay. Don't worry about your job, but we got to see some of these young kids play Mm. and find out if they can play. And, uh, and I think that's what we're seeing. Yeah. I mean, frankly, it's, it's, uh, it's been something this fan base has been waiting for. At least I've been waiting for it, waiting for uh, Sheldon Keefe to sort of just loosen the grip a little bit and make sure that you're finding out what you have on this team and what could come if you just stop focusing on the guys that are supposed to take you where uh, you want to go. It feels like it's been a long process getting to this point, uh, but we might hear and might be here, and I think Brad Living does deserve some credit in that, even if I'm just sort of uh, making an inference. I, I do, though, think there's multiple layers of comfort or, or reasons that you could uh, say that he's also a little uncomfortable because the temperament has been something that's popped up this year for sure. And you mentioned it, $25,000 less in the pocket after blowing up and being uh, escorted out of the building or at least kicked out of the building in the last game. How does a coach's combustibility affect a team? Like if it is over and over red faced, if it is blowing up on the refs every night, does it impact what the team is doing? And I guess more importantly, does it impact what the referees and officials do on a nightly basis when they're in your building? Well, it depends who's combusting for one thing, because uh, it, I think a lot of that still has to do with tenure and longevity in the league. Certain guys have different leashes. And I think Sheldon, although he's been around, he's still with his first team. And I think at certain times he can piss people off um, with some of his comments. I, I found it amusing that, it was almost like, a, I'm trying to do the analogy, it almost like a manager coming out, giving it to an umpire, and then on the way back to the dugout, turning around the umpire saying, okay, I've had enough of you, you're gone. <laughs> because he should have been thrown out <laughs> when he actually snapped. He actually, <laughs> he was he had calmed down by the time <laughs> yeah. he got caught. Yeah. But it was unique in a sense. But, I, I, you know, I think there's just such emotion and passion. I think uh, Kiefer, to me, has looked, uh, he's looked a lot more intense on the bench uh, I think there's been some times that he's been, uh, you know, he's a very intense guy. I coached him and it, his intensity as a player was off the charts. So it's, it's uh, obviously being in the market like this and it, it has to get to you at some point, but I, I just think he's pulling, pulling some nice strings right now. And, and again, it'd be nice to see uh, this backhand add another piece. I mean, it looks like their goaltending has sorted itself out. I don't think you could cure it even if it hadn't, hopefully wall gets healthy, but uh it's just a crazy time of the dread, uh, trade deadline. I mean, I remember you've got to be really careful. Uh, in Toronto, I guess it's different. I mean, I mean, I could tell you some stories about Los Angeles. With our our our, our views about what we we're going to do deadline trades changes a lot different when you're staring up at a couple banners, and uh, because you feel more confident, you know you've done it, you want it again. But I think it gives you a little bit more slack as opposed to when you were looking at one playoff win in the past six or seven years. Every decision is absolutely, you know, under a fine-tooth comb and for in a microscope for for very good reason. Yeah, that's got to be part of the reason uh, I would imagine Sheldon Keefe is as intense as he is. He knows this is a, a pressure cooker. What was Mike Fuda's combustibility as a head coach at St. Mike's? We're sitting here talking about Sheldon Keefe's. Were, were you uh, calm on the bench? <laughs> you're really, you're really thrown out there, Jess. The priests. <laughs> <laughs> I am my first job. I've got guys with like 400 minutes and penalties and the priests come down and say, we're not going to fight anymore. <laughs> I'm going, well, why didn't you tell me that before the draft? I've got Chris Cava here. That's got 500 minutes from, 
he's from some place up north, and you've told me he's got like a 12 average. He's you going tell to him that. <laughs> <laughs> and you tell me the guy can't fight. So, no, there was a lot of stuff going on off the ice there that was non-hockey related that uh, was a challenge for me. But a lot of great people. It was. It certainly opened the door for me. But there was a lot more than goodness, discipline, and knowledge going on behind the book <laughs> when we were putting together our lineups there. So, anyway, I actually – do I have a little bit of time to tell you a quick draft story? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, so and it, it goes with actually make sure what you're giving up too because uh, we were on our run there and we'd won a couple cups and you're feeling great about things and we our core was still intact. Uh, our guys hadn't all got arrested yet, which is another story. And Quickie gets hurt and we clearly weren't the team that year to do it, uh, to, to take that jump. And it's so hard to make that decision. And we didn't have to do it because we had a couple banners and because we were still having success. There, nobody's job was on the line. But instead of just riding it out and you know taking our bullets for that year, we decided to make a trade with the Tampa Bay Lightning and acquire Ben Bishop. And this is no knock on Ben Bishop. But we, in turn, traded prospect Richard Cernak, Eric Cernak, and, uh, and a second-round pick to get Bish. And we were having all kinds of problems with, with Eric because – we didn't know he couldn't speak English, and uh, he didn't want to go back to junior. He wanted to go play for his dad, and we moved on from this kid. Our development guys were ticked off because he wasn't, he didn't understand the language, and we got so ticked off this kid way too early and threw him into a deal, and you don't have to Google too far to find out what Eric Sarnak's become. He's a two-time Stanley Cup champion, six-foot-four right-shot defenseman who's a staple. So you've got to be really sure when you're making these trades too, especially for rentals. Um, that you're not giving up something that's absolutely huge. And, and that's why the rental thing is very dangerous when you're giving up something that you really covet. Like when we got Mike Richards, who was captain Canada, and we knew, but well, he was under term, okay? He was under term. We had to give up Braden Shannon, Wayne Simmons, okay, which are two future all-stars, but we got two banners because of Mike Richards. So those mm-hmm. ones, they're doable when a guy has term, but when you're going after a rental, you better be damn sure what you're giving up. Chernak, too, looking up at a couple uh, banners after a couple Stanley Cups uh, with the Tampa Bay Lightning. Uh, we probably glossed over this too quickly, uh, but Chris Tanev is going to the Dallas Stars, not the Toronto Maple Leafs. And I wonder for you, Mike, how it affects Dallas's chances of winning a Stanley Cup. Huge. I mean, I'm good friends with Pete DeBoer and Steve Spott, and we speak all the time about, you know, and if anybody I ever want to see win Stanley Cups, it's those two guys. I mean, we've been friends for life. We competed against each other in Kitchener. And then as luck would have it, after kind of getting waxed by the Rangers, we end up beating them with the Kings and they're running the New Jersey Devils. So that was kind of some a bit of a dream scenario on my part. But if anybody deserves Cups and they're back end, adding this, and if they can, I still think they could add another D. And, and Jim Nil, good on him because he got ahead of it early. I don't think... I I can't speak for them because I'm not in the room, but I don't think I'm sure when you're putting up your list of prospects and you're hoping that internally, the general manager says a name on the other side that just isn't warm and fuzzy on your feeling. You're praying he avoids certain names. And all of a sudden when another night game comes up, that isn't that much. You're not, you don't feel that great about it. Of course you immediately say, Oh no, we don't want to get rid of that guy. But internally you're going, we got him. And I'm sure that's what they felt about the, the Greshnikov kid. It's a great ad by the time they, did the uh, the salary cap gymnastics. I think he's about $1.125 million. Mm. So I think now on a team that was striving for a right shot warrior, they've got him. And I still think they have room to add another guy in the back end to even furthermore add depth. And now we're going to start to see these teams. I mean, I know 
Los Angeles. I mean, last year it was Tampa Bay the year before, and now it looks like uh, then uh, Vegas did it last year. These guys that go on LTIR and then come flying out of the gate in one of the playoffs after that monster doctor gets a hold of them, and the other team's eighteen million over the cap. <laughs> I, I start to watch the medical doctors right now. Uh, I don't. I love Adrian Kempe. Drafted Adrian Kempe, but if his his injuries should align with the Kings being able to add a five or six million dollar player, these things are going to be huge down the stretch. And you can't feel sorry for the Leafs in this one because they've got about eight goalies and nine players on LTIR too that are allowing yeah. them to still compete. So that's are, not the league versus the Leafs. Are you expecting it to be uh, an active trade deadline? There's a lot of teams still in the mix. There's a bunch of teams, you know, five, six points out. Calgary is one of the teams that are, you know, five points out of a playoff spot. And here they're, you know, potentially going to be getting rid of multiple players here. Like, are you are you expecting it to be more of a, an active deadline than what we've seen in the past? Well, I think everybody wants it to be because the show really gets boring after a while. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can only tell so many stories, but the bottom line is there's so many teams in it, and that's what that's what Gary wanted right. is, is that you got to be really careful. Like, I mean, the teams I'm watching, you know, and again, I mean, Toronto's former general manager is now in Pittsburgh, and, you know, that team, Sidney Crosby is keeping them in the race, but realistically they got a lot of teams to climb over, and if you – you remove Gensel from that picture, you probably somehow hope you're getting something back that's still going to help this team in the run. Uh, I think Calgary played their hand, and not in a bad way yesterday. I think once you move on, unless they know they're signing some of these free agents, that I would think that Hannafin is on the move. I'd be really careful about moving Markstrom. And for me, this is one of the big reasons, and let me know if I'm running out of time here, but if you're doing a trade for a player that has term at the deadline, You've got to be really careful for hypothetically, you could be trading the team that has the 13th first round pick and you give them Markstrom and he goes on a 15 game heater. All of a sudden that pick is now a late first round pick and it's out of your control and destiny how well that team does because you're just making them better. Whereas when you're sitting at a draft table and you decide to trade a star player with term, you know exactly where that first round pick is. And there's no guesswork with it with regards to the number you're getting and the quality of player you're getting. And, it's, and that's particularly important for what I'm hearing from guys, uh, you know, that are talking about this year's draft. I know Jason Bukala does it all the time and says that it kind of drops off uh, after about 20 picks. Doesn't mean there's not going to be great players or, you know, some diamonds in the rough, but it's not one of those drafts that, you know, a late first round pick is going to be as valuable as it would have been past. Uh, you've done more buying than selling in, in your executive career. Uh, but what's more stressful this time of year? Is it the buying or is it the selling? Dean Lombardi always says it's easy to buy. Um, it's easy to buy because you just put all the de- best offers down on the table, talk to your staff and leaving your staff and go for it. Uh, whereas selling, you're, you're giving up assets that you can't get back. So I, I'm going to trust Dean on that one. Um, funny story for me is it was kind of a, a learning curve for me and my assistant general managership at the trade deadline, because uh, we kind of knew we weren't doing anything. And I was walking on the pier and this smoke show comes up to me and she's walking her dog. And she says, do you, do you have, I know you're with the LA Kings. Do you know anything about a dog sitter? And I'm thinking, I got it. I know the key here. I got to get on this. This girl's gorgeous. So I called Jeff Carter because I know he's in charge of the dog sitters. It's trade deadline day. And he almost had a heart attack. <laughs> Here's me. And he's an all-star and I'm calling him to get a number of a dog sitter and his wife. It's like silence on the end of the phone. <laughs> and I'm like, he goes, Futes, can you please realize when the assistant GM calls on trade deadline day, 
the family, the family, you know, is in tears, and you want to friggin' find out who the best dog sitter is in El Segundo. So it did was you, a learning. Did you get a good dog sitter at least? I yes, it was a pack of a dinner. There we go. <laughs> That's too good. Uh, well, we got trade thy de- deadline day coming, uh, which gives you plenty of time for more stories. Mike Fuda, two-time that Stanley Cup awesome. champion. Uh, uh, we appreciate you jumping on, and uh, hopefully we can do this again soon. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Mike. That was Great awesome. One. Thank you. Take care. That's Mike Fuda. Oh, couple of knows a good dog sitter in El Segundo. Yeah. (laughs) A couple of really uh, fun interviews today. Just uh, a lot of revealing good stories, which is always fun. Um, Must be the leap year. Must be Feb 29. Exactly. Exactly right. Uh, Yeah. I I don't know. When I I look at the Leafs, like I've been sort of banging this drum all year long. I actually think they're pretty good. And I, I don't, I know that they don't have a lot at their disposal or Bradshaw living doesn't have a lot at his disposal to really truly make this team that much better. The prospect pool is not what it once was. Um, But I think if they don't do anything, I still think they're a really good hockey club that has a a pretty decent chance of of going on a a special run here. And Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm in the minority on that or what you think of that, but I, I just don't see them doing something even really that can elevate them even more than where they actually are right now. I mean, Hannafin would be great, but is is that really realistic? It can't be reckless, right? At this point, it can't be reckless. Although, you look around the Eastern Conference, and it's not not the West. No. It's not the West in terms of the strength where, yeah, the Maple Leafs could be out in round one. There's there's no doubt about it that that could happen. But the Dallas Stars could go out and spend and spend and spend, wind up second in the Central, draw the Colorado Avalanche, be done in five nights. Like, that is very, very possible. So if you're going all in, there's definitely some pitfalls. And maybe because Bradshaw Living's having his first kick at the can here, there's some excuse not to. But there's also no harm, I don't think, in just going into a playoff series, challenging your guys and saying, hey, like, we pay you guys a lot of money. Yeah. And we brought in a couple rental-type guys in Tyler Bertuzzi, Max Domi, before the season. You got a whole right. year to work with them and and figure out if you can draw some meaningful chemistry through one another. Uh, I feel like they should be trying to upgrade, but I feel like they have to prioritize, you know, at least the first round pick, unless that player comes with an extension or has term. Like if it's Hannafin and he wants to sign, then maybe you're thinking about it. But then we're talking about the handedness and maybe Hannafin's not the perfect fit. Uh, There's just a lot that goes into it, but like, the type of deadline where mm-hmm. it's Ryan O'Reilly out the door, five more additions, clearing all the futures capital, that probably can't be the Maple Leafs deadline. Uh, yeah, I think it's it's just a really interesting time because you're obviously coming off of the seven-game winning streak, and I do wonder where my mindset would be had they if they were playing worse hockey than they're playing right now, obviously coming off of a loss. But they're playing so well, and it really looks like they found something over the course of that winning streak that, hey, maybe the Leafs don't have to be so desperate in order to have a really good shot going into the postseason. It really, I really do think that they sort of looked each other in the eye after the Morgan Riley suspension and said, hey, like maybe, maybe we pull up our bootstraps a little bit and see what we're made of here. And you ultimately saw the result. And every team goes through swoons over the course of the year. I'm sure another one will come eventually. But seeing that seven-game stretch, you now know what they're capable of. You know that they can play against the best teams and come on ahead. So I, I just think that there's a lot to be excited about, and I don't think it's a five-alarm fire if the trade deadline comes and goes and there isn't some sort of big name that has made 
his way to Toronto. If not the Leafs, a definite opportunity for Eastern Conference teams. There's only a handful of ones that are probably considered in that elite tier. Like if I'm the New York Rangers, it is time to move the chips into the middle of the table, probably the same uh, for the Florida Panthers. Uh, The Maple Leafs host the Arizona Coyotes tonight on Sportsnet Ontario. Uh, My best bet of the night is from that game. uh, Matthews, Austin Matthews has had a quiet little uh, stretch here. Uh, It hasn't been... The white hot goal scoring, slump. at least. You say it. Massive slump. Massive slump. And yeah. this, when it constitutes a massive <laughs> slump when it's only a couple games uh, for the Rocket Richard uh, winner. I'll just put it that way now. He's going to win the Rocket Richard. And I think he takes steps toward that tonight. Two plus goals plays, plays, pays, excuse me, uh, plus 330. I also like a Wemby triple double tonight. 28 to 1. It's Love. the Spurs and OKC Thunder. It's Chet versus Wemby, although Wemby this time around, has, like, found Rookie of the Year Wemby, and I think he tries to make a point head-to-head against Chet, triple-double, 28-1. to They're already talking about him being the best defensive player in the history of the NBA. (laughs) What are we, like, 40 (laughs) games That triple-double could include 10 blocks. It's ridiculous. Uh, My pick is uh, the Ducks and Sharks are playing against each other tonight, and they're both really bad. And not only are they really bad, but they're goaltending has been really bad. Kapo Kakinen uh, has just been brutal all year long. He's got an, a goals against average over 350. And usually when you have two bad teams who are capable of scoring but not keeping the puck out of their net, there tends to be goals up mm-hmm. on the board. So I'm going over six goals in the Ducks and Sharks game tonight. That's a barn burner written all oh, over it. Can't uh, wait to watch it. Congratulations to Caitlin Clark. Declares for the WNBA draft officially. So, so much fun to watch. Uh, yeah, it's going to get fun in the WNBA yeah. next year. Uh, lots of fun on a leap year. Love it, man. Kiprios Day, yeah. February 29th. We'll do it again in four years. It's a fan. <laughs> Pre-game on Sportsnet 590 The Fan.